Today on Pilot's Discretion, our guest is former Alaska Airlines CEO and general aviation pilot Bill Ayer. He talks about airline myths, leadership lessons, and flying the Piper Malibu. Pilot's Discretion starts right now. Welcome, Pilots. I'm your host, John Zimmerman of Sporties, and thanks for listening. If you like Pilot's Discretion, please follow us in your favorite podcast app and leave us a review to help other pilots find the show. And remember, you can catch up on every previous episode by visiting sporties.com slash podcast. Today, I'm honored to have Bill Ayer on the show, who many people consider one of the sharpest minds in the airline world. He is the retired chairman and CEO of Alaska Air Group and spent over four decades in the airline business. He's also an avid pilot with more than 6,000 hours logged, many of them in his Piper Malibu. He has served on the board of the Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association and the National Business Aviation Association, among many other organizations. Bill, welcome to Pilot's Discretion. Hey, thanks, John. Like all pilots, I love to talk about flying and aviation, so I look forward to our conversation. Great. Well, I'm interested in your perspective as an airline executive. You started your own airline many years ago. You later ran a, a large one. And on top of that, you're an active GA pilot. So I'm wondering if you can give us a little bit of a peek behind the curtain at the airline world. Sure. What's the most underappreciated part of keeping an airline running? Something that's hard to do, but nobody really gets credit for. Well, I can start, you know, at, at Alaska, we, we talked about the importance of tone uh, by the leaders. And so we talked about being both realistic and optimistic. So let me try that in, in answering this. Um, the brutal facts, the reality uh, of the airline industry is that it is capital intensive, it's labor intensive, it's highly regulated, highly competitive, it's very sensitive to the economy and especially to oil prices, and it has proven to be disproportionately impacted by events like 9-11 and COVID. So other than that, Mrs. Lincoln, <laughs> that's the airline industry. <laughs> um, and in the early 2000s, every single airline, uh, every single legacy airline, so that would exclude Alaska and Southwest, either filed for bankruptcy or was acquired or, or went away. Uh, and at Alaska, we weren't immune from those problems, um, but we did our transformation, our restructuring. We did that outside of bankruptcy by working together with all 10,000 employees and making the, making the changes that needed to be made kind of on our own. Well, so where's the optimism in this? The optimism is that there's there's still a lot that's controllable. And uh, if you're good at planning and executing, I think you can really excel in, in the industry. And we had uh, that experience at Alaska. Um, and I think the good news today in aviation, more generally, is that we're seeing a nice uptick. And that's true of the airline industry. Passenger demand is through the roof post-COVID. And um, we're seeing good activity with general aviation as well. So, you know, it won't last indefinitely. That would be the lesson from lots of decades, but we certainly ought to take full advantage and enjoy the good times while they're here. Another good story in the airline business that I think still is somehow underreported is the safety record, how incredibly safe airline flying has become in the U.S. in particular. What's the biggest lesson we should learn from this long stretch of safe flying? It's easy to take it for granted, but what should we not forget right now? Well, I, th I think that, that airline safety is really a data-driven activity, and the airlines have made huge progress over the decades. Uh, I remember a conversation, it must have been 30 years ago, but people looked at the, at the rate of airline accidents, and they extrapolated that out and said, if this rate continues, 
with the growth in the industry year over year compounded, we're going to have a heck of a problem. We could have an accident once a week if we don't get the safety rate uh, down. And so the airline industry went about it in a very diligent way uh, using, again, data, uh, the whole what's become SMS, which is basically measuring everything you can. You know, what gets measured gets managed, the old expression. And that's really true when it comes to aviation safety. And so I think there are things that actually could apply to general aviation. But the, the basic things of, you know, FOQA um, ma- management or, or measuring uh, the flight profiles is, is a key part of this. Um as is the, the, the whole training side and, and safety reporting. The non-punitive safety reporting is a big thing. Airlines have a program called ASAP, which actually is a contract between the company, uh, the, 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 the FAA, the union, and everybody gets immunity as, as soon as long as the, the, the uh, reports meet uh, the, the criteria. Nobody did it willfully, for example. Uh, and then you get a whole bunch of data on near misses, quote unquote, and then people look at that and they evaluate the risks and then mitigate the risks when necessary and then share that data across the whole industry. So it's data collection, data analysis, and data sharing. And it's been really, really powerful. And I think uh, general aviation can learn, can learn some of that going forward and, and continue to improve what is already a pretty good uh, safety record on the GA side, but make it even better. There's been a lot of talk, the growth you mentioned post-COVID, System feels a little strained. There's been some some near misses, some things like that in the headlines. How strained do you think the airline industry now? Whether it's the technology, the workers, uh, do you do you think we're just going a little bit too fast for uh, for our own good right now, or how do you see things? Well, I think you have to ask. So that these events that we've seen, they're certainly serious and they get your attention. Uh, part of it probably is that there's just more awareness. There's more media coverage. We're, we're measuring more things. There's more transparency about the things that are going on. So that by itself is good that we're looking at, at things. And um, But the, the severity of a few of these, while nothing terrible happened, we sure had some close calls. And I think that, you know, I think the action, appropriate action is being taken. Um, and I think it, it may be, part of it might just be a lot of new people uh, in the, in the mix on, on not just pilots, but on every aspect of the, of the industry, I think we're seeing new, new people. And, and there is with the, on the airline side, with the demand, uh, situation, there's a desire to fly as much as possible. Major carriers want to fly as much as they can to generate the revenue and move people where they want to go. But I, I do feel good about the, the, you know, kind of the, um, pause that we've taken here, to, to look at these things and the NTSB involved along with the FAA, which is good. And, uh, and not every carrier I know is, is doing their own introspection on their own operation um, and continuing to look at every day things happen. That's just the nature of, of a complex activity like this um, and continuing to evaluate, are there, are there new risks? Are there new things that we ought to be doing? And you just don't take it for granted. You're absolutely right about that. You can't just say, we've got this great record. Don't worry about it. Um, but I think part of what makes it so good is that we do worry about it and we, and we work on things that appear to, to be trends and things that we can, we can mitigate. Do you think there's a pilot shortage in the U.S. right now? And if so, how long do you think it's going to last? You know, that's, that's an interesting one. Um, so, um, and this gets maybe to talk a little about my time at Horizon and, and the regionals, um, that, uh, so the regionals generally have academies and, and those things are going pretty well and they're training first officers. 
Um, what's happened is the major carriers, with all the retirements that happened during COVID, the, the, everybody ended up short. But what happens is there's sort of a trickle down here where the major carriers hire from the regionals. And so the captains from the regionals have become first officers at the majors. And while the, while the regionals are having some success in bringing in new first officers, the real shortage right now is with captains, which is interesting. So the regional carriers are not flying. For the most part, they're not flying their entire fleets of airplanes. They would very much like to, but they can't because of the pilot constraint. Um, and kind of who suffers in that are the small communities, because that's what regionals do. They fly you know, smaller airplanes in smaller markets and feed passengers to the hubs and so forth. And um, so the small communities are not seeing the frequency of flights that they used to see. And, um, and that's an impact for tourism and community de- development, economic development, and all, all of that. So it's going to take a while, too, because I think, I think a first officer needs 1,000 hours before they can upgrade to captain at the regional. And the, the majors keep hiring the regional uh, captains. So the, the regionals do actually have a, have a unique problem here, uh, and it's going to take a while to work, to work its way through. Let's talk about leading a large organization, in particular, a large airline. It's not like leading a law firm or a software company or many other jobs. So how do you balance that need for safety, which we've talked about, but also efficiency, which, as you alluded to, the, the realistic part of uh, your duality there? How do you balance that? Are they at odds with, with each other, safety and efficiency or, or keeping passengers safe and, and making a profit? Well, to, to talk about safety, they're, they're not at odds, John, but, but safety and nothing else matters if you're not safe. It is the absolute number one priority. And as we've talked about, metrics matter. Uh, and, and, um, but safety has got to come first. If, if it's the absolute number one priority. If you're not safe, nothing else you do is, is, really, is really relevant. The, overall, um, I would say that the, the, being in the leadership of a major airline is a quick lesson in humility. It, it makes you humble if you're not already that way. And the, but the secret sauce and, and the, the, what we did at Alaska uh, you know, with our restructure and our, we called it the 2010 plan, but our basic transformation, um, the secret sauce are the employees. Uh, airlines are a team sport and the, uh, the employee culture really matters. Our model at Alaska was a virtuous cycle that we described and it starts with employees. And it's basically that, you know, you hire and develop terrific people who have the values and share the vision and love the business. And they in turn take great care of customers and if you have enough happy customers, then you have happy shareholders. And the virtuous, the cycle part of that is that um, the shareholders will want to see you grow if, if it's, you know, a, a good, a profitable business. And that will allow you to hire more people uh, and take care of more customers. And so um, that worked well for us. But uh, the, the lessons along the way are things like planning versus execution and the tendency is to continue to plan and delay the execution for fear that your plan might not be all that good. And what we learned about that was get the plan about 80% right. Now, I'm not talking about safety. Safety's got to be 100%. But the, the, the business model, get, the, the, get that about 80% right, and then just get out there and start executing. And you will figure out where you're not exactly right, and you'll course correct along the way. Um, but I've seen too many examples where people just want to keep, keep planning Thomas Edison has a quote about that. I think he said, vision without execution is hallucination. So um, the execution part's really, really important. And the other that I think I alluded to earlier was that the controlling what you can control. 
there's a bit of a tendency when there's so much that's not controllable and, and some big things can happen that you, that you really had no part of. They just happened to you. It's, it's a little bit of a tendency to throw up your hands and say, I, I, I'm, just ha- I'm just along for the ride. I'll just report what happens. And the reality is there's, there's still a lot of very controllable things. And, and we found that. But, but you've got to remind yourself of that because it, it, it does get frustrating sometimes when it just seems like no matter what you do, um, you know, it continues to be a, a, a difficult business. Um, so we said, hope is not a strategy. That was one of, one of our things in this 2010 plan. We said, let's just figure out what we, where are the controls, let's get our hands in the controls and, and let's, and let's start flying, flying the machine. And, uh, and it actually worked out pretty well, but you know, leadership, it's, it's a, it's a, with employees at the center of this communication is really, really important. Uh, you need to be totally transparent. Uh, and as I said, a healthy dose of humility, because, Without it, you won't learn as much from the mistakes and you won't continuously improve. And that's an important, important value is continuous improvement. Great advice on the planning versus execution. I wonder, drilling down on the execution part, lots of companies talk about being customer centric or focused on safety. How do you make that real for frontline employees? You know, how do you turn that into culture, which you've alluded to, and make that a real part of the day-to-day execution, not just the sign on the wall? It's a, it's a great question. And you've, you've got to build it into everything and you've got to, it has to be the why of, of whatever change. I mean, there's, you know, it, it, and it's all about change because the world is changing. Uh, and so it's got to be continually reinforced. It's got to be goals with on the metrics on the scorecards have to be the goals and incentive compensation is another way to reinforce that. And we did a lot of that at Alaska, which was, which was very successful, but you, you can't just put the sign on the wall and then do something else. It's kind of like value statements. You've got to live them. You've got to, they've got to be real. You've got, you've got to point to them. You've got to recognize people for that. And you got to celebrate wins and, and you celebrate based on those, those things. You mentioned change, a, a huge part of managing any business, no matter what industry, no matter what size. Lots of books are written on this topic. The question I don't see addressed often enough is how you know when your business has to change versus when something's a passing fad. Or I think I've seen you... Uh, put it as cyclical versus structural change. You have a process for thinking about the difference there and discriminating between the two. How do I know that this is a real change and I need to change my business versus I think I can wait this one out and see where it goes? Another great question. We had a big debate about that at Alaska. And uh, we had 17 or 18 years of profitability, mainly flying in the state of Alaska. And as we grew the system in, in the lower 48, we ran up against Southwest Airlines, which had a much lower cost structure than we did. But the folks that had been around for a while and had seen the 17 years of profitability basically said, ah, this too shall pass. Just wait it out. It'll be fine. Don't worry about it. And several others of us said, I don't think this time that's right because we're doing something fundamentally different. And we've got a new competitor. We've got a disruptive competitor in Southwest. And back in the 70s and 80s, that's what they were this whole new low cost model and our cost structure really didn't allow us to compete with them effectively on, on with it, with the same uh, ticket price. So I think you have to look at the, at the specifics of it. Um, and, um, I don't know, I'm, I'm not a big fan of waiting to see if things just naturally get better. Sometimes they do, but you kind of have to be able to talk through why that's the case. Otherwise, um, getting going with a plan and, and executing on it, uh, I think is, is, is the better, the better approach. What's your advice for a young person maybe getting into aviation, dreams of being a leader in the business? What do you think the most important skill is for them to develop other than 
you know, great stick and rudder skills and how to use the rudder in a climb. What are some of the soft skills that, uh, based on your experience, new people in the industry should think about? Well, I th- first of all, you have to have a passion for it. Uh, and, um, because there's going to be good times and bad times. And if you're only in it for the good times, it's not going to be that much fun. So, so having a passion for it, I think natural curiosity about, about things, everything about the industry, people that come in and they, they just like a sponge and they just want to learn more and, and add value to the organization and, and be promotable. Um, so natural curiosity, I think collaboration is really important. It's, this is, like I said, it's a big team sport and you need to be able to get along um, and if you do that well, you, you, and you understand how the industry works and the, and the interdependencies kind of across the divisions of the business, um, that employee is super valuable on the management side. And those, those are the people that you want to, you want to develop and you want to give them opportunities to do new things, learn new things, meet, meet everybody in the company, get a good understanding of how the whole place works. And that, that's the senior executive material as I see it going forward. So people that come in in an area that they're interested in and then, and then get with their boss, find a mentor, raise their hand, say, I'd like to get ahead. I'd like to learn new stuff. I'd like to be able to do things that are, that are that add value to the business. Um, those folks are golden. And we were very fortunate to have a whole lot of those at Alaska, a lot of people that just came in and were just eager to do more. Uh, and it's really what makes the business work. Bill, let's take a quick break. And when we come back, I want to talk a little bit about GA flying. Earn all your pilot ratings and keep your flying skills sharp with Sporty's Pilot Training Plus. This all-inclusive membership unlocks Sporty's complete library of award-winning video courses so you can learn anywhere you have your phone, tablet, or laptop. For one annual fee, you get access to over $1,500 in courses, a smart investment in your flying career. Plus, enjoy free shipping every day of the year at sporties.com and apply for one of our three annual flight training scholarships. Learn more at sporties.com slash pilot training. Now, back to pilot's discretion. We are back with Bill Ayer, who started his aviation career many years ago at Piper Aircraft in what many would call the golden age of general aviation, probably. Bill, can you give us a sense for what that world was like for a newer pilot? How was GA different in the late 70s, early 80s compared to today's GA world as you see it? Well, I was lucky. I started with Piper, I think, in 1978, and that was probably the peak of general aviation aircraft production, something like 18,000 airplanes, I think. And we thought that was just going to go on forever. I remember mm-hmm. the marketing meetings, and we just thought it was just a, a upward slope. And this was just the beginning. And then it changed dramatically. But I had a great job at Piper. I was involved in the uh, in the Tomahawk program. So this was the basic idea that if you learn to fly a Piper, you'll buy a Piper. And we needed a more competitive training airplane than just the Cherokee. So we were up against the Cessna 152 and, and, the, and the Beach airplane. Um, the industry's changed a lot. It's a lot safer today, for one thing, which I didn't really realize at the time uh, when I was flying. Um, it's a it's a lot more pleasant uh, head headsets. I mean, when I was instructing, uh, you put earplugs in and you scream, right? And I'm lucky I still have hearing or a voice. <laughs> um, and the equipment is much much better. I mean, the airframes are the same, the engines are pretty much the same, but boy, are the avionics ever better? Um, and the iPad and uh, man, it's, there's just some great stuff. 
And so people that are, that are technologically inclined, I think are finding this to be a great activity. Um, so I, I think it's, it's changed for the better, uh, from a pilot perspective, certainly the industry is more challenged, um, with much smaller production, much higher costs because, because of that, the volumes are down. Um, but I think it's, I think it's still a very good time for, for general aviation. I think I, I, and, and I'm, I'm encouraged the, the last few years and it's, it's ups and downs. And, you know, there've been some times where it's, it hasn't looked so great going forward, but I think right now the, the future looks pretty good to me. I would agree. And one of the changes you alluded to there, the technology side, you had a lot to do with. You worked on the FAA's advisory committee for NextGen. A big sprawling project means ADSB, Datacom, lots of other parts of, of NextGen. Do you think that has been successful in the end? It's been a you know multi-decade project on the part of the FAA, and, and a lot of it has come to fruition here in the last really five years in many cases for pilots. Where are we with NextGen? Has it worked? It, I think it's a work in progress for sure. Um, you know, one thing I was I was really impressed with, always been impressed with the number of people who volunteer for these committees to volunteer their time and expertise to serve on these FAA industry committees. And this next gen advisory committee was one of those had a lot of really talented people during the time that I was on it. I wasn't one of them, but we had some folks that really understood this stuff. Um, and, um, and several from Alaska Airlines because, because Alaska was a real pioneer with RNP up in the state of Alaska. Um, in fact, we started that way back in the late 90s uh, into June of Alaska, uh, which was the, is the state capital. Um, and at the time had a localizer. The best approach they had was a localizer approach down to, I think, 1,202. Now, keep in mind that in Alaska, there are no roads. So everybody's flying in and out and to get to the capital for a hearing or whatever you had to fly. And there was actually a, started to be a move afoot to move the capital back to, uh, to Anchorage because of the accessibility in the wintertime and getting in and out of Juneau. The, the cancellation rate due to weather was, was very, very high. Well, with RNP, the RNP development, uh, we built an approach, our team built an approach to get that down to 200 and a half. And there's just terrain all over the airport. And so it was a real combination of things that enhance ground procs and and, and a lot of wind. So there's a wind profiler and, and it's a very sophisticated system. They're very, very safe. And now all the airports in Alaska have RNP and basically precision approaches to every runway end, much lower minimums, much less, you know, much fewer cancellations for weather. And, and by the way, no more circling approaches, which, which allowed me to sleep better at night when I was CEO. I didn't much <laughs> like the fact that we were doing circles at night in the, some of these little places. Um, and for GA, we've sure seen a proliferation of RNAV procedures, uh, particularly at uh, at smaller airports. You know, many of which had no instrument procedures at all, and now have RNAV GPS, maybe the LPV minimums. Um, in fact, I think there's now maybe you would probably know, John, maybe four thousand plus LPV approaches and maybe fifteen hundred ILSs. So in the last few years, that's really flipped. Um, personally, I'd rather fly a, a, an RNAV approach than an ILS. It's just easier, right? Um, I agree. So I'm. I'm no longer directly involved with the FAA work on this. My understanding is progress has slowed a bit. I'm not sure why exactly. Um, but my view is there's just an opportunity to take greater advantage of the technology in airplanes uh, if ATC had better tools. And in fact, I'm having some discussions with ATC in Seattle and also at, at my home airport here at Boeing Field, just on ways to reduce delays and, and have them recognize what the capabilities are uh, in, in the airplanes and, and um it's frustrating when the technology allows some, some, so much more than we're currently currently using. So hopefully there's there's more progress to go on on next gen. 
It's interesting. I think a lot of GA pilots, if you would ask them 20 years ago, they would have thought next gen, well, this is for the airlines. This is a, you know, we're kind of getting dragged along so the airlines can have their business run better. But I think you could argue that GA pilots have really come out on top. The, you know, in-flight subscription-free ADSB weather, traffic is in more cockpits than ever before. You mentioned approaches. I barely fly ILS approaches anymore because of all the RNAV approaches. It's really, it's been, I think, in a lot of ways, a boon for GA pilots that maybe goes underappreciated sometimes. So I agree. You've logged a lot of time in a Piper Malibu, great high performance airplane, a uh, great way to get around. You're probably biased maybe by your Piper time a little bit, but what lessons do you apply from the airline world when you fly GA? Are there habits or uh, SOPs that uh, you learned along the way at Alaska that can make you safer as a GA pilot? Yes. And there are probably more than that I should use that I don't. But I, and I just recently put a new Garmin panel in this airplane. By the way, it's a, it's a 1984, which is the first year of production of the Malibus. My dad bought it new and I got it from him. So it's 39 years old and I, I think I'm going to keep it. It's, it's a pretty good airplane. Um, hmm. But I did all the new Garmin stuff here two years ago. Um, and uh, it's fun learning all that capability. It's sure a far cry from when I learned to fly back in the 70s. Um, and I actually think it's about as good as what's in a 737. Um, and, um, but there's just a discipline to, you know, the buttonology and the knob twisting and all of that. And, uh, a little more checklist, you know, driven things that I'm, that I've gotten back to. Um, and I, I, am finding that I have to fly more to stay proficient and, and take advantage of all that it can do, which is, which is good. It's a good excuse to go flying. So it's all working out. What's your favorite thing about that airplane? Oh, I think, I think it's just, it's capability. It's, uh, you know, turbocharged, pressurized, de-iced and very efficient. Uh, it's, you, it's a, it's got the continental engine in it. So you run at Lena peak. Um, you're required to run at Lena peak actually. And so it's like 14 gallons an hour at 180 knots, maybe up as high as 200 knots. If you go up to 25,000 feet. Um, and it's quite flexible. You can fly, uh, it's got a lot of gas in it at, at 14 gallons an hour, 120 gallons. You can go a long way. So it's, it's easily 1100 miles. Um, at, if you want to sit that long, and uh, anyway, it's, it's great. It's great. It's, um, I, I like it a lot. And, um, I, you know, I've looked at turbines and other things and I've got friends that have those and that that's great and it's fun, but I don't, I don't have a mission that needs any more than what I have. And so matching the mission with the airplane, this seems like a really good fit. Do you think the Malibu got an unfairly bad reputation for a while there with some of the early engine issues and everything? Is that, is that an old wives' tale now that anybody who has bad memories of Piper Malibu should uh, get updated and read the latest news? Yes, uh, but you know those were a lot of those were pilot error things as well. Um, Piper did a whole recertification of the airplane when they had uh, a few of those in-flight breakups. Nobody could quite figure out what was going on there, and of course, it did great in the recertification. And it was really um, attributed to, to, to pilot air, not turning on pitot heat and icing and then losing control of the airplane. So, you know, it's like it's an airplane and um, and it's subject to the same risks. And you, you, it, it takes a certain amount of care to, to, to fly generally. And, and, and this airplane, you know, it, it's got a lot of capability and there's a lot of air between the ground and 25,000 feet. So <laughs> um, anyway, and I, I'm, I do a lot of training, a lot of recurrent training and, and uh, instrument work and so forth. And I'm, I'm, I'm pretty serious about it and pretty careful. Yeah. And that may be the best lesson from the airline world to take recurrent training seriously and do it often. Yep. Bill, at the end of every one of these episodes, we like to close with a bit of a lightning round. We call it ready to copy. I'll throw out some questions on a variety of topics and you give me a quick answer. You ready to copy? I'm ready to copy. 
What has changed more over your lifetime, airline flying or GA flying? I think GA flying for me personally, because of the technology, the glass and the autopilots and all of that. The Boeing 737 MAX mess. Did the FAA reaction go too far, not far enough, or by some miracle, just right? I think it was appropriate. Um, there's, you know, you, there's, there's blame on, on both sides. There's pilots involved in the accidents and the manufacturer involved in the accidents. And, um, I, I, I think, I think it was appropriate and I hope Boeing continues to make progress and gets the production back up and gets the, the max seven and max 10 certificated. I think they will. I hope they will. Um, and, but I think it was, I think the FAA action was appropriate. Is the 737 and the Airbus A320 similar designs? They've been similar for the last decade or two, more efficient engines, but essentially the same basic construction cabin. Is that the pinnacle of airline design or do we need a radical break to get some next generation of airliners? I think I think we need something new, just a question of when. And, um, you know, typically when you look at, at development of airplanes, there's engine technology step changes in, in engine efficiency that go with, with a new airframe program. Um, and I'm not sure the engines are, the engine manufacturers are quite ready for that. Um, but innovation has been the lifeblood of this industry, new things, new approaches, and we, we, that needs to continue. And, um, and we need to make sure that, that the FAA certification process allows it to continue on a reasonable basis. Um, and, and will encourage investment and not have certifications go on forever and cost amounts of money that you can't build a business case around. So I, I do have some concerns about that. But looking at the history, innovation has been a great thing for this industry and it needs to be in the future. Yeah, great point. I think maybe an underreported part of the 737 MAX story is the reason that airplane is a stretch 737 is I would assume the costs of doing a clean sheet airplane are just prohibitive. So some maybe some bad incentives there that nobody really intended. What's your favorite airliner to ride on when you're a passenger, when you're in, you know, seat 10B, what do you like to be riding on? I, I like the 737 Max a lot, and Alaska's got a lot of them. I think it's, I think it's a great airplane. Uh, and 787 is a good machine as well for long, longer haul. How about your favorite historic one? DC-3, 747, what's a, a retired airliner you'd love to ride on? Probably the four seven. That, that that's just a classic, and the story with Boeing and how they put that together, and the risks that they took betting the company on it. It's it's quite a story. Is it okay to drink coffee on an airline flight? All kinds of crazy conspiracy theories about how the water is not really that clean on the airline. Is it okay to order a cup of black coffee next time I'm on Alaska? Absolutely, I don't worry about that. And the other thing that people were talking about was air quality, and the air quality is is better than walking outside. I think it's. Everything. My opinion is all of that's well shored up and, and uh, measured, and it's all very safe. You served on the boards for both AOPA and NBAA. What's the most important role for an organization like that? Why should I care as an everyday pilot? I think I think two things. I think I think advocacy. Uh, they really do provide leadership for the industry, and they keep FAA focused on priorities. And they keep pressure on things that are important. I think all the associations do that. And the other, maybe a little more recently, although AOPA with their ASI group has had safety as a prime focus for a long time, but there's just getting to be more safety uh, emphasis with all the associations. Um, and it's what you guys are doing too, John at Sporties. It's great. And I think there's more safety content. There's more outreach. There's more understanding. Um, 
one of the concerns with safety is there's people think there's this sort of unreachable group of pilots and the folks that go to the safety seminars and look at all the web offerings and so forth are people that don't necessarily need it. They're already safe. But I think we're starting to make progress with just how much is out there that we can get this group that's previously maybe a little people viewed as untouchable from a safety communication standpoint, get them more into the fold. And that's going to help uh, GA safety. I'm going to ask you to be speculative for a minute. Do you think supersonic airliners are ever coming back? Does is it a business model problem or a technology problem? I think it's a little of both. Uh, I'd love to see it, and I think it. I think something will happen, and it's not in the near, in the near term. Um, and but maybe the maybe the maybe the business airplane uh, would would be a part of that as well. Um, but I I I think it's part of a, it's 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 part of a continuum of of innovation and progression, and we need I think we need to figure that out at some point. So let's follow that continuum. How about space tourism? Do you ever see a day where Alaska or Delta or United has an extension that gives you trips into space? N- not in my lifetime, probably, but I, I, I'd, I'd like to be optimistic and think that that could happen down the road. Aviation seems to attract a really wide variety of interesting people. Anybody, I think, who's ever been to Oshkosh and spent an hour with new people learns that. What do you think it is that draws so many different people together to this industry and this passion? I, th- I just, I think it's, you know, curiosity and it, and it is a shared passion. You're absolutely right about that. I think it's, um, and it's something that I've come to appreciate more as, as our country seems to be becoming more divided in so many other areas. Um, and you mentioned Oshkosh, the poster child for passion is Oshkosh. It's, it's, it is literally the happiest place on earth for that one week in July. And, um, you know, the old saying is you first year you go for the airplanes and you go back for the people. I think that's true of, of aviation generally is that people like people that are interested in the same thing. And um, there's no politics. It's just we're just interested. It's cool. And we like it. And we like being together doing it. And um, it, it's it's a unique thing. I think it's stronger. I think that passion is stronger in aviation than just about any other activity that I know of. All right. Our last question on pilot's discretion is always the same. You have one final flight. We want to know what are you flying and where are you going? Well, it would have to be my 1984 Malibu because like I said, I'm going to, I'm going to keep that. Um, and I think, so we, we have a, um, a second home in at Lake Chelan, which is in central Washington and they've got a great little airport, but it's kind of nestled down in the mountains and there's no instrument approach in there. So you have to kind of figure out if the weather's not great, how you get in there. I would love to be flying that Malibu into Chelan, Sierra 10 is the airport, in a, on an LPV approach. Um, and I think there are people, the, the, the fellow that worked at us, uh, worked for us at Alaska that did all this Juno work, Steve Fulton, uh, could figure that out. He could figure out how to put an LPV in there, and it might have a bunch of RF legs in it and various things, but he could figure out how to make TERPs work and get, it, get a pretty low uh, set of minimums into that airport. And I'd love to fly the airplane in there and do that. Bill, thanks for being on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you, John. Thanks for listening to Pilot's Discretion, brought to you by Sporties, training and equipping pilots worldwide for over 60 years. For more episodes and today's show links, visit sporties.com slash podcast. I'm John Zimmerman. We'll see you next time on Pilot's Discretion. Pilot's Discretion.